Yeah, I don't know, man. You ever just feel like life is just catapulting towards like, some greater purpose? The only DJ crazy enough to tattoo Jackie Brown on his ass. This is Michael Mann, and I ride with Extended Clip. Welcome to Extended Clip, episode 71. I'm one of your hosts, Eddie Averill. I'm Malcolm Baum. I'm JT White. And today's double feature, this week's double feature, is a uh, couple of new releases by a couple of auteurs that we've championed on this program over the last year, uh, Adam Sandler and Sai Ming Lang. Uh, the films are Days and Hubie Halloween. Now, JT brought this double feature to our attention. What was your motivation in pairing these two films when, you know, every week we look at two any any given two films from the history of cinema? <laughs> um, well, there were a lot of motivations. I mean, like sometimes it's just like you you want a layup. You just want a, a solid flick that you know you're just gonna fucking you're gonna these two I was on board right away. I knew I was gonna love them. On top of that, I think well one there's the clicks there are these two hot fresh flicks I'm I, I'm a businessman at heart yeah <laughs> um and I uh, I want things that the the people are gonna be excited about um and also while it is like obviously two two great men that we have uh, recorded a lot of tape over like spin like talking about their legacies but I mean with Sai it's like it's we're 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 jacking ourselves off here a little bit but we're having our vegetables like it's going <laughs> to be a, a difficult time talking about days and I figured this was something that would be fun to bring to the pod to like I don't know figure out exactly how I feel about it and uh talk it out. Mm -hmm. Malcolm how'd you feel about this double feature? You know, I loved it. I loved going back to the AMC, watching these two movies, you know, AMC A-list returns. And I, you know, I, I bought a ticket for days and then, you know, while the usher wasn't looking, I snuck into Hubie Halloween and, uh, you know, it's a good deal. Two for one like that. So I had, I had you know, two buckets of popcorn, three sodas. I, that's what I ate, you know, at the, at the movies. So I did have a good time. How about you? Yeah. I mean, I was going to say for those of you asking where these films can be seen, they are playing at your local AMC. Uh, <laughs> now, D Days just had its premiere at uh, the New York Film Festival. I believe it had played at another festival. Berlin. Yeah. yeah Berlin. Uh, but it had its North American premiere and, uh, you know, its first real open access event because for this year's New York Film Festival, you could, you know, rent the films while they're playing there. I'm going to say rent the films. You can't buy a ticket. That's bullshit you're renting a vod uh you're and it's nice you're allowed to do it and mm -hmm. that's how we watched it we were at nif like everyone else true i was in a, a, a zoom nif meeting and i uh i saw my favorite directors and i I, uh, I raised my hand so he would call on me and it was i'm glad i spent 16 dollars on both of these movies side so just well actually it's a lot more than 16 dollars i'm pretty sure really i'm pretty sure it's like 30 that's Great. I'm glad we spent that. <laughs> We're obscuring the truth here. Sai gave us a personal print. Like he wanted he wanted us to talk about this on the pod, especially. Yeah. And uh Hubie Halloween's on Netflix. I mean, we can't really beat around the bush on that. But is that the final film in his Netflix deal? I, I haven't been watching, but I feel like he'll return. This seems like too good of a, exactly. a deal. But we'll get to Hubie yeah, Halloween yeah, yeah, after yeah. we eat our vegetables. Vegetables. 
Days is the latest film by uh, quasi-retired filmmaker Sai Ming-Lang, who clearly, like Steven Soderbergh, is just too addicted to giving us classics to properly uh, give us a swan song, if you will. It's a film that is purposefully unsubtitled, and there's only a bit of dialogue that you hear, you know, in passing, but for the most part, it's just... uh, the sounds of your environments as you watch these two characters, uh, Lee Kang Shang, the usual uh, lead for Sai Ming Lang, alongside Anong Huang Huangse playing Non, and we'll just use his character's name, and Lee Kang Shang, of course, playing Kang. And uh, it's just these two men living their life. They have a chance encounter in the middle. Is it chance? Is it planned? Well, we didn't know, but they had a good time, I'll tell you that much. And uh, we see them living their lives, uh, the days leading in and out of that encounter in the middle. And there's not much else going on other than duration and atmosphere and texture and performance and all that good stuff that you get from Simon Lang. And health and uh, wellness, too. This is a, a great movie about health and wellness. Cooking, you know, pampering yourself, taking yourself to the spa, getting a massage, you know what I mean? And what might come with that. You know, it's, it's all about self-care in this one. So this is just a gorgeous film. I mean, that's like, you know, if you've seen any films by Simon Lang, you're already being redundant, uh, speaking positively of its visual qualities because it's just so obvious. But uh, yeah, I mean, from that first shot of Lee Kang Sheng looking out the window as you hear the rain and the lighting just subtly changes over the course of a few minutes, you know, and uh, then you get the shot of non, you know, washing green onion and other greens. Uh, and it's just these little moments that you spend with these characters for a little over two hours. But it feels once you kind of, uh, I guess, get fully on board with the film at once longer than two hours and much shorter. You know, it, it's a very strange approach to time in this film and how he like builds up to certain scenes and images. Yeah, I definitely buy that um, in that like there are points like when it was over, I was like, wow, that was such a breeze like that was quick. But then like in the moment, some scenes definitely like uh, you're you're hanging there for a while. But like, I don't know this a lot like uh, Stray Dogs. I think it's like beautiful where it's something that's like so sparse, but you get you still get so much detail just through like the setting and atmosphere. I think like one thing that like got me right away like on board with it is just like the contrast in Nan and Kang's like lifestyles. You see Nan like living a classic Psy like house just fucking dirty, just like shit on the floor. The house sounds wet. Yeah. <laughs> um and then that's contrasted with like Kang living like a more like middle class sort of like nice like city life. And uh, I think you sort of get like a really thorough picture of their lives if you I mean, without like much detail about it. No. Yeah. I mean, I think with like non right. It seems like his life is a lot more structured. He has these rituals, you know, him cooking the vegetables, praying in the morning. And he seems to, you know, be employed on like. Uh, Lee Kang Shang, who kind of just seems to, you know, drift around, try to get his neck fixed and whatnot. And I think this is an interesting comparison to Stray Dogs because it is, of course, well framed as any Sai Ming Lang movie is. I mean, you're using as little shots as he is, you know, they, they better be good. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> um, I feel like this one, though, isn't as like rigidly 
uh, I feel when I think of the images of stray dogs, I think of some very like harsh images, you know, a king, you know, crying in the rain or even the, the house that his family lives in has like this bizarre visual look to where there's kind of a softer approach to days, I would say. Yeah, I mean, I would say that even comes down to the scenes that are out in the city. Uh, you know, in Stray Dogs, you have, uh, well, the scene where you just have Lee Kang-shang crying and like the, the hustle and bustle around him. Even in this feels a little less harsh, even if it's that same urban hustle and bustle uh but like the scene of at that nighttime market outside where you just see some people perusing you know looking around and then you get a nice uh long shot of those public toilets right after uh and it just feels so much more open and yet also so isolated for these characters i think the key is the last shot just like stray dogs you know he just absolutely destroyed me with a final shot not to get too ahead of ourselves Mm -hmm. but you know, you just have the the non-character with all of the weight of the previous interaction with Kang, and you already have seen Kang's send-off for the film, and you just have him sitting at this, like, bus stop bench where behind him maybe usually would be an advertisement, but it's just a blank kind of canvas behind him where all the, the reflections of the lights of cars are just, like, zooming by him while he sits there in isolation playing the music box that Kang gave him. Uh, And it's just like the world could be, you know, right in front of him and he's still so, you know, isolated in that moment. It's just uh, it's a thing of beauty that so few filmmakers can pull off. I mean, to draw that back to, I mean, talking in relationship to Stray Dogs and this like, I don't know, it's miraculous that this movie is like captures like the sort of real loneliness of isolation and just seeing these men like in their separate routines at first before they come together it winds up like this really positive like beauty that emerges from their like connection even if they're like going through like really solitary lifestyles they have this really beautiful moment that ripples then throughout their lives and I think that like is really echoed there with him just like with the music box at the end I guess we should talk about the the big scene. Mm-hmm. We're beating around the bush here, and uh, we should be beating each other off like the end of that scene. <laughs> now, this is definitely. I feel like with uh, any Simon Lang movie, and maybe this is a you know a dumb guy's approach to it, but there's like always a moment within the movie where I'm like, I'm always enjoying it at first because it is like pretty easy to enjoy for me. Kind of like just a slow pace, long duration shots that are well framed. You know, I like all that stuff. But then the like he'll bring some sort of uh, emotionality into it, and you know, in this one, some sexuality into it with this sex scene, and it really just kind of, uh, I think, like you said, informs the rest of the movie and kind of just makes everything fall into place for me. I think the sexuality works really well with the con- the contrast of the bodies there with like non sort of like, I-, I mean, other people have drawn this comparison before, but it, I mean, he's not filling like a Lee Kang Shang role in like an early Psy film but they are like similar like built in similar ways and I think that their like their connection like alone for like being a very intimate moment that's important to the characters I think works even more because of the differences between the two of them I mean that scene is just so expertly executed you can't really make it any better uh, i i this is where it transcended from like typically great simon lang fare to from this point on it being one of my favorites for, you know that i've seen 
I've only seen a handful of his films, but it just really hit me where you just have this shot of Lee Kang-shang laying on his chest, you know, and slowly non-creeping into the frame first, uh, you know, rubbing the oils on him and whatnot. And the the slow build toward like actual sexual like you know what's gonna happen but you still kind it's still leaving a little bit of wanting to know what's gonna happen next uh and it's just presented in two shots too and you get the first shot that's so perfectly framed and then you cut to a slightly different angle where it almost feels more clinical and you just see Lee Kang Sheng's torso and up, you know, uh, and then you think, Oh, maybe it's not going to be a sexual thing. And then you get a slight tilt and a readjustment of the bodies. <laughs> and, uh, it, it's just like the, I don't know. There's something about slow cinema where the slightest gestures feel like a wave of emotions kind of. Mm -hmm. And I feel like this scene epitomizes that with every slight change of where the camera is and how these two are interacting with each other. I definitely agree that what what you're saying about how like every movement movement feels like more important and magnified. I mean, one thing for me that like obviously like a lesser scene that happens early on, but it's non like uh, prep in the veggies. And there's just like a little piece of dust that's like blowing (laughs) that just like captivated me for a little bit that it's like it's such a beautiful little movement going on in the frame. Oh, yeah. Some uh, some backstories. I did a little research and apparently uh you know, of course, Psy didn't really come into this movie with a real structure or story in mind. A lot of it was just like him following Lee Kang-Sheng around shooting. But the non-character is someone who he became friends with over like video chat in like 2017. And like over video chat, he would notice him cooking and he always admired it. And that's he wanted to incorporate it in the movie. And that's why we see it in the film today. Hey, I, I'd love to see a, a full uh, Tsai Ming Lang feature of just non-cooking, just, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just yeah. prepping some veggies, just going off, you know? And I love when you even have some shots of just the pans and pots that he was uh, using in the first chunk of the film later when he returns to his residence and he's not in the frame. Uh, and it's just like the emptiness is felt so deeply. And I also, to return back to the their, their scene together, the interaction that they have post coitus oh uh, is so precious from just like the very kind of sentimental almost way that he's like washing him off in the shower. Uh, but especially the exchange of the gift and then letting non walk out of the hotel room and then just like taking that small beat before he goes after him. And then the cut to them eating soup together just some of the loveliest, most like really romantic things I've ever seen from Psy. No, yeah, I mean, you, you think about it, you got a, a mainstream romantic comedy happening off screen with, yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, Lee Kang Shang running to, you know, go see, uh, you know, his masseuse. And I, I think, you know, what you said, of course, and I think this is a great tenet of slow cinema. Every, th- every change is felt so much. And like these people live, they live, you know, they have things to do, but, you know, somewhat lonely, desolate, some would say empty lives. So every, you know, affectation that they get means so much to him you know as as it's shown when he receives them non receives the music box and when he reflects on it towards the end i think after uh, their interaction i i talked about how non's uh side of this film wraps up with him at the bus stop but i think uh the kang character is even more like isolated and kind of depressing in the way that his character wraps up because you just have a shot of him going to sleep 
and the way it's framed is so subtle at what it's getting at you know his the lighting on his bed it's just like a little panel of light on Lee Kang Shang and then it's so soft the transition into how dark the rest of his bed looks with that giant pillow just sitting on the other half of the bed where a person should be and then the cut to him in the morning is just completely framed by his own arm kind of in like an L shape and it's a really interesting thing where the perspective is just like I don't know it was it was completely shocking uh that cut to that close-up in the morning in a way that I yeah, I, I really just don't really know what to make of that image other than be kind of blown away, or at least by those two images together. No, I think, yeah, Simon Lang, especially with Stray Dogs and Days, you know, his latest that we're talking about, does things with perspective that is just, you know, kind of baffling like that. I mean, I, I recall, you know, I can't get over it. I I've, I've mentioned it already, but the, the house that, like, um, him and his family live in in Stray Dogs, there's a couple of uh, perspectives that Simon Lang takes where I'm like, I don't even know exactly what I'm looking at. Like it's mm-hmm. a very abstracted image, but he also just does classically intelligent things with perspective too. You know, going back to like Nan's cooking scenes. I love how the camera is basically on the ground and we have, we see Nan's cooking setup, which is also very floor centric. And like, it's a very good place to place the camera as Nan goes about in his house, you know, prepping his food. Yeah, the low-level uh, stuff works really well, obviously, with the interiors, with how their houses are set up, even with Lee Kang Shang in the hotel reclining uh, right next to the window in that little sofa seat thing. But uh, also in the street scenes where you see people walking, the camera is still generally at a low level. And, uh, you know, the characters are far from the camera so you can't really tell until someone walks in front of the camera and you just see like their hand and their hip kind of and uh i don't know just the way that he navigates the streets there's this one handheld shot i was gonna mention that yeah the, the handheld comes 40 minutes into this film after so much stillness you just get this crazy handheld following lee kang shang through these alleys going up to get his acupuncture right Mm -hmm. and then also leaving the acupuncture after you get another long handheld tracking shot that you just have people walking by and looking into the camera just like one of the strangest parts of this movie for sure i i loved it though also i mean a a big departure for sai as well who never takes the camera off the tripod i mean i can't really recall him doing so before well he has i haven't seen them yet but he has those short films of people walking right i'm not sure if those are tracking shots or pans or what Mm -hmm. uh but this one is like shaky handheld too which really took me aback but i thought it was like lovely and such a great juxtaposition for everything that came before and after you know no yeah there's kind of like a jaggedness and a you know a literal slantedness like to these images and it's i mean especially I mean, talk about, you know, with Hubie Halloween, we have the Happy Madison universe with, you know, Siming Lang. We have the Lee Kang Sheng, the Sao Kang universe. His neck hurts again. And it, it, you get to see him just experience that pain in public surrounded by people. It's kind of an intense experience. That's one thing that you bringing up the, the wider universes at play here that I think is really spectacular is that like. This like days works as like like without the context of Psy and Kang's um, ongoing like partnership. Um, it's like just a masterful film, but like filling in the gaps there of just like Lee Kang Chang's own like history with like neck pain that he side draws upon for the river and then brings back here with this in particular because of how old like because i watched the river earlier this week i wanted to do a little bit more science in preparation for this but just 
seeing him so young contrasted with how old he is now, it just feels like this work is a beautiful like musing on like their relationship in general and just sort of how they've built like a very intimate bond together but that like you can I, I don't know it's just as rewarding of an experience to see this film without any of that knowledge you know I, I had a joke I had a joke a sign mingling joke and I, and I was kind of th- I was like it's kind of fucking stupid but um <laughs> Uh, it's like, you know, people have to stop posting Simon Lang screenshots online. That's like half of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> That's not fair to him. I will say there's one particularly still shot in this, the exterior of like an apartment building where you see in one window, you see a cat moving around kind of, and that is the only movement in the frame. And it's like a minute long take too. It's just wonderful. Just playing with stillness and then movement in other scenes and, I don't know. This one's a five bullet for me. Film of the year. Easy. Masterpiece. I wish I could say more about it. Like, I I think Mm -hmm. how I'm talking about it probably conveys how confused I am about it still and how I'm still working through my feelings about what it's doing on the whole uh, beyond the usual Simon Lang stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I I see a I know a masterpiece when I see one, you know. Uh, So the only words I can describe this film is 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 next level. So (laughs) passing it to you into the next level camp. And, you know, I'm going to give this one uh, four bullets. I really liked it, but I feel like I didn't quite uh, attach to it. I feel like I had a similar experience with uh, What Time Is It Here? And then on a re- when I rewatched that movie, it completely opened up to me. And this one, like, I still enjoy uh, quite a bit, but I, I don't know. I just I, maybe I was a little too skittish, had a little too much caffeine in me, you know. But I, I, I mean, I still really enjoy it. And it is, yeah, movie of the year, without a doubt. But uh, JT, what do you think? I mean, movie of the year for sure. Um, I'm giving it four and a half bullets. I mean, like, I feel like I'm the middle ground between the two of you. Filthy centrist. (laughs) (laughs) In the coming days, this is going in the coming days. They do some coming in the days. (laughs) Yeah. Um, This is going to linger with me a lot. And I think, I mean, some point before the end of the year, I want to revisit it. Because, I mean, uh, we've talked a lot about it in relationship to stray dogs which i mean like obviously makes sense because it's his like it, narrative feature after like seven years but it's like i i don't know it's beautiful that he's able to use these same techniques to like a very devastating effect in stray dogs that feels like very very miserable yeah. <laughs> and like this leaving me like sort of calm and positive and it's like there's a lot of truth in the loneliness that you see and just seeing these like the depressing day to day of when like no one else is around and just watching routine. But there's a lot of peace in that as well. Um, and then just so like the fact that their connection is so beautiful and that like, I don't know, potentially fleeting because like where we leave off in the movie, it's like they may see each other again. Maybe not. Yeah. It doesn't really matter. But the fact that it happened is so important. And uh, yeah, I love this movie. It is really impressive, like with each feature, like Simon Lang is learning how to distill his own personal style to like the bare necessities to wear. I mean, if you look at the closing credits, it seemed like he probably had a cinematographer, someone to hold boom and, you know, his two actors this is probably it. It was a very, very small set. Yeah. So and I'm glad he's making art the way he wants to. I feel like, you know, he's a. Uh, 
He's avoiding he's avoiding all the Hollywood drama. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't want to get caught up in the drama. In the riffraff. In the in those credits you also do see that Lee Kang Shang gets a co-credit on the uh the present, which I believe means the music box, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it has to be. Yeah. I don't know what else it would mean. Uh, yeah. He also gets a calligraphy credit once again, uh, showing off his artistic strokes, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll be right back to talk about Hubie Halloween. And we're back on extended clip. It's Malcolm in the middle. Everyone's favorite segment. Uh, Malcolm, have you watched anything of note this week? Yeah, you know, I like to dip my toe into the zeitgeist now and then, you know, and I'll watch a new release on Netflix. These are the ones people are talking about. So when you're at the the water cooler, you got to bring your A game conversation wise. That's how you get ahead in business. And um, I watched American Murder, The Family Next Door, the most, you know, non-title ever, which not <laughs> fake movie. Uh, this is a documentary about a husband killing his wife and kids, classic. You've seen 2020, you know, um, Forensic Files. Uh, th- what's notable about this one is that there's literally, like, zero footage that the documenter- documenteurs seem to sh- shoot themselves. It's all scraped together from, like, police body cam footage like and doorbell the ring security cameras and just a, a mom who likes to vlog and so there are no talking heads no talking heads whatsoever and a police step like a police questioning video where they you know they got the camera on you and uh it's just you know this is how cheap these movies are to make nowadays it's like they, they don't even need to shoot anything they could just you know scrape all this footage together online you know, pay the <laughs> pay the family with the murdered uh, daughter, you know, a nice lump sum to agree to, you know, air it. And, you know, there you go. So it was, uh, yeah, it was a pretty bad movie. And uh, I didn't enjoy it. This is my hit of the week. Uh, dog knew, of the week? Dog of the week. Yeah, this, this, if this movie was a person, they'd be a, a dog of a person, a real ugly motherfucker. Uh, that's how I view it. Any of you guys watch anything? You guys watch anything? Yeah, I am... Um I watched Adam Curtis's The Living Dead from 1995. Which, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but seems like a, a good version kind of of what I'm talking, because like, he doesn't shoot Talking Head. Or yeah, he does. Um, yeah, sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I think there's... Kind of a, a weak statement there for me. <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> um, but... I mean, Adam Curtis documentaries, I feel like, are really hard to talk about. I mean, like, obviously, he's formally doing a lot of things really well, like, with how he pieces together, like, three, in this case, three individual stories that tell, like, a broader picture about just how politicians will create sort of, like, a false history of the past to sort of, like, either lionize or, like, vilify particular groups and, like, how that can be manipulated for, like, public... Um, for the public to do what they want. And in this, there's one episode that like particularly struck me just because of, I mean, I think I might, I'm in the early stages of becoming like a World War II dad (laughs) um, because they talked about uh, the Nuremberg trials in this. How they, during the trials, there was like one sort of attempt where they were interrogating like one of the Nazis to sort of get to how 
it was able to spread widespread in Germany and they like they were really the, the people that were interrogating him were very dissatisfied with his answer because he was sort of confused by the question or like mm-hmm. they, they couldn't tap into like the Nazi perspective and how it was able to sort of like take over like a country uh, with that guy. Um, that line of questioning generally sort of stopped and there was this like the, the painting of the allies of like, OK, because in the situation of World War Two, what the Nazis did was clearly so evil. They just sort of put it in terms of like a very black and white morality and didn't sort of interrogate how this could happen in like, I don't know, pretty much any country. Mm-hmm. But with that um, and that sort of like sending off me in terms of like trying to dive deeper into World War II history, they're talking about at the Nuremberg trials because it was like post-war, like Nuremberg as a city was completely like destroyed. And so some of these dudes would be just in between the trials, just like walking around like a completely like fucked up, blown up city. But I was surprised they were throwing fucking parties. I mean, I understand <laughs> the the war was over, but like while they're trying Nazis, like dudes are trying to get pussy. Like there's <laughs> one guy like try like who tells a story about like flirting with some woman like during it and it's just like I didn't know that was going on at the Nuremberg trials. Yeah. Like try to like I understand World War 2 is over, but like just hold up a minute before yeah. getting your cock wet. Well, I like, mean, you remember the famous painting or the, ugh, you remember the famous photograph of the sailor kissing a woman when exactly. he comes home. From, that, yeah. that was actually, uh, the clothes were airbrushed onto that f- photograph. <laughs> you know, everyone just got off the boat and was sucking and fucking. And I know that's yeah. in America. It's different than in Europe where much of the catastrophe is still right in front of you, the remains of it. But, uh, People were still, you know, essing and effing. I mean, it was looks just, like everyone's guilty. I just thought the Nuremberg trials overall. <laughs> everyone's got something to hide. That's what I learned from that lesson. <laughs> from World War II. <laughs> it's just such a bleak affair because they're going over like concentration camp footage. And then it's like, well, at the end, we still won. So at the end of the day, we're going to throw a fucking rager. It just feels like. <laughs> I don't know. A contradiction there. Yeah. No, Do better. I, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> what about you, Eddie? Have you watched anything good this week? Oh, sure. Uh, I watched The Crowd by King Vidor, uh, the 1928 silent epic. And it's really one of the most like emotionally punishing and aesthetically rewarding films I've ever seen. And it's like the ideal use of the big silent epic, you know, the, the power that these filmmakers had during the silent era to make the viewers dreams come true (laughs) but it's really like a the system that produced it is in the sights of this movie and it's shooting it down you know uh the systems at large of capitalist rhetoric and assembly line production are all targets of this really punishing film as i'll say it again because everyone in this film is just messing up making bad choices you know but it's such a beautiful film and they're such a product of their own system that you can't help but feel for these people still you know uh the montage of new york in the beginning is just one of the greatest things i've ever seen in cinema and maybe maybe it is maybe 1928 it was over and we we've only gone downhill. <laughs> Are you gonna become one of those right wing letterbox guys? <laughs> yeah. Return to modernity. That's her. <laughs> wait, no. Ah, shit. Well, actually, 
classical cinema is somewhat of a modernist venture. Yeah, exactly. So maybe get rid of all this postmodern garbage and return to modernity. That's that's a bit anti anti papist though, because the the Catholic League of Decency didn't get involved with Hollywood until 1933. That's when things really started to pop off in there. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, watch The Crowd if you haven't. And also watch Our Daily Bread, which is kind of like the other side of the coin of The Crowd, where that one is about, uh, you know, big city alienation, our favorite topic. You know, it comes up in that one, whereas the other version of the anti-capitalist critique of uh, famous ain't. Ayn Rand Stan King Vidor, who also made these weirdly anti-capitalist movies, uh, is about like collectivism and farming and stuff like that. So check out both The Crowd and Our Daily Bread. I've already talked about Our Daily Bread on this podcast, I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because I said it was Our Daily Head. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's a vision I could get behind. <laughs> we'll be right back on Extended Clip. And we're back on Extended Clip. Uh, before we get into Hubie Halloween, real quick, I wanted to plug the Patreon. For $2 a month, you can become our best friend and uh, get a bonus episode every week. And right up, right, 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 right now <laughs> on the Patreon feed, you can get maybe my favorite bonus episode we ever did. Uh, scary Movie by the Wayans was the main topic of discussion, but we ended up going deep on the parodies and... Uh, Talked about Friedberg and Seltzer and Zaz and Mazin, a touch of Mazin, if you will. Uh, and uh, next week, we're going to be talking about Ghosts of Mars on the Patreon, the John Carpenter classic. So subscribe. Yeah, it's like you're a uh, fourth mic, but you don't get to say anything and none of your opinions matter. <laughs> it's like you're the least popular person in the room. Yeah, you're just, you're, you're just the guy who can't get a word in edgewise. You're yeah. on the show, but you can't get a word in edgewise. You're the, you're the guy we, we uh, let you hang out with us. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't really English. Hubie Halloween, directed by Stephen Brill, the latest film from the Happy Madison production company of Adam Sandler. Hubie Dubois loves Halloween just as much as the Happy Madison team love each other and their fans. Uh, you know, with the cold open reprisal of Ben Stiller's nurse from Happy Gilmore to in the end credits getting Adam Sandler reenacting the dodgeball scene from Billy Madison, it's, it's clearly, uh, you know, a love letter to the last 25 years of cinema. But at the same time, it's also a different kind of more streamlined, head full of steam narrative than we're used to seeing from the Happy Madison team. Uh, what what'd you guys think of Hubie Halloween? I liked it a lot. I mean, hey, you know, return to tradition. We got Adam Sandler doing a, a particular voice, you know, and that it's it's funny to hear him do the goofy voices. And I feel like I, I'd let him get away with that more than anyone else. And yeah, I do kind of like this is a change of pace. This isn't like a lax Dugan Sandler or anything like that, where it's like chill vacation vibes. More where Sandler plays like a man about town, you know, just the the guy everyone knows, is, you know, has an opinion on. And, uh, I, you know, there's some new additions. We got Ray Liotta in the mix, who's a, a welcomed addition. And uh, it's it's a, there's a little bit of freshness in this movie. And I, I enjoyed it as a Sandler fan. It, it delivered on, you know, where I wanted it to let, deliver. I, uh, yeah, this is, I mean, in my mind, it feels like a Sandler Richard Jewell. For sure, <laughs> um, and from there, I was I was really on board. A, a sweet, well-meaning guy who everyone hates—that's always very funny. 
Um, but I don't know. For me, this is like clearly, clearly one for the fans. You get, you really get that as well. But I think it's one for the haters, the people who dislike late era Sandler. This is a return to, I think, I don't know the the Sandler that you're okay that you're allowed to like, like the '90s, mm-hmm. like uh, Billy Madison. Totally. Him, I feel like playing to that crowd, but also to the people who have fearlessly stood by him all these years <laughs> well and i i was developing something of a theory about yeah. adam sandler where when he does these one-off projects with an auteur the happy madison team kind of reflects it afterwards yeah well, and it's slightly but in the early 2000s you have both punch drunk love and spanglish and you also have really the most sentimental happy madison movies uh, yeah. like you know, I guess it's mid to late 2000s, but click. But also 50 First Dates is the main one that I think of when I think of that. Mm-hmm. And then this one, it's clear that he, you know, had uh, vocal instructions from Benny Safdie. <laughs> <laughs> I, lo- I love the, the, the wind up to that joke. Very, very masterful. <laughs> No, I, I get what you're saying, though. I mean, I... <laughs> no, but it's also yeah, the yeah. first one of his movies that even flirts with being a thriller. You mm-hmm. know, like, he's yeah. done genre stuff, Ridiculous Six, even Bulletproof, like, yeah. kind of, like, it has its thriller moments, but really leans into more the buddy cop comedy kind of thing. And uh, I think this is definitely, you know, I guess, Jem's kind of backdoor influences the the slight thriller energy and maybe some of the harsher uh digital nighttime lighting you know yeah. i mean i feel like the way the narratives interweave like i mean while i think like some of the kids stories have like that relaxed nature that like the dugan sandler has i think it's like i don't know it's impressive how many like different pieces they like do at first and like little fake outs there with the buscemi stuff oh yeah i i think this is actually kind of a smart uh narrative film for what it is because it is like not a real horror movie and at first i thought maybe it was two movies like halloween uh what scary movie was to something like scream you Mm -hmm. know where it's like you're using a template and then kind of just making jokes off of it but it really is its own little thing that only the happy madison team could really scrape together i think because it has the same kind of sense of community as something like grown-ups too but it's kind of the other side of the coin in terms of pacing performance style even the style of humor like it's all very different but then you have the commonalities like Shaq and uh warren zevon's uh werewolves of london being played in public uh in grown-ups 2 at kmart and in this movie on the radio (laughs) no yeah i mean you know maybe they're going for something a little more artful here we do have some classic horror movies displayed on some flat screen tvs yeah and you know what i gotta say it's not like much credit that you get for it but you do get points for showing something in proper uh form because uh after so many movies have been shown in improper aspect ratios within other movies it was nice to see a nice hd 4-3 copy of creature from the black lagoon in this movie they know where to get the files so if you don't know what the movie's about hubie is something of a self-appointed hall monitor uh and he's always been picked on and he's always cried wolf but when the town may be in real danger Will anyone listen to old Hubie? Uh, And his bullies include like a young, you know, a a high school senior who works with him at the deli. 
Kevin James as the police chief who uh, Sandler is constantly reporting things to, and James with the rest of the police squad are constantly brushing off Sandler. Uh, and meanwhile, uh, the woman that Hubie loves uh, and that that loves Hubie is finally ready for him. <laughs> yeah. Very, I, I gotta say, yeah, that part it, it, it's a weird start, but it yeah. wraps or it's. Like a lot of Sandler movies, you just kind of got to accept some of the early narrative beats to get to the good stuff later, you know? No, definitely. And you like talk about fan service, right? We see uh, Stiller appear and then, you know, Julie Bowen, you know, the, his first love interest. It's true. And, um, you know, with uh, you're talking about Happy Madison or Billy Matt, you know, it's like Happy Gilmore. I always mix up the titles. Now. Yeah. That's one thing. <laughs> One criticism of the production, damn, I gotta say. <laughs> no, but I feel like, yeah, I mean, there's, I feel like a, a Sandler movie does a, like, uh, depends on a lot uh, where his, like, public persona is at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, where, you know, something like Click, Spanglish, you know, even Rain Over Me, he's kind of going for this more dramatic, sentimental type feel, where it's like Sandler has got into the people's good graces again. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the I feel like the stand up special he did was received well. People gave respectability points to the week of, you know, they're like, oh, okay, this is, this is nice. And then I of course, say, was yeah. the week of given respect outside of like film Twitter circles? I, I, don't, think, I don't think it was. I think, no, I'm not saying, I'm not even saying respect, but like, this is a respectful type oh, okay. yeah, movie. Yeah. Like, you know, perusing the reviews, I, 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 you do see like a hack critic be like, you know, Sandler goes for a change of tone. Well, yeah. I also yeah. think that one to relate it back to when he's doing his one offs with different auteurs yeah. is kind of like the response to Meyerowitz in a, in a strange way. It's true. It's at least the closest to that bomb back style of navel gazy upper middle class, quote unquote, indie dramas that he ever did, you know? Totally. Yeah, I'd agree with that. So, yeah, Sandler, Sandler goes sweet here. He goes sweet. He goes he looks back through the memories. He brings back. All the classic people you love, but also adding a couple new people in to you know keep it fresh. So I think yeah, this is savvy Sandler. I oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, a, a lot of good bits. I don't know. It just kind of it moves along at a nice pace. There's some you know uh, nice callbacks to other horror classics, such as the mayor who doesn't want to shut down the town because of business <laughs> on their big holiday. The mayor played by George Wallace, greatly. <laughs> I mean, Sandler's great at getting these strange assemblages of people like we've talked about so much over the last year. And here, it's not even so much a factor, but there still is the strangeness to some of the uh, cameos, of course. I mean, I think it just shows kind of like the people he's been able to work with throughout mm-hmm. his entire career. And like, it's kind of all spread out here. You know, you, you have classic uh, Tim Meadows returning, you know, Maya Rudolph, who was in the Grown Ups pictures. Colin Quinn, who always shows up in like his movies for like fifty seconds, and yeah, does a great job here. So I, at least I never was a nerd. <laughs> but he's like a janitor. Yeah, I, I mean Rob Schneider gets back in the mix, and of course maybe uh, you know Sandler, the biggest pin in his suit, you know Buscemi, right? You know, great actor outside of Sandler movies, and uh, of course Kevin James too. I've almost forgot him, but uh, he does a great fat guy role again. Keenan Thompson, I you know I was like I was liking Keenan Thompson in this movie yeah. because it's like this is. He, he can make a good face and there's always some, you know, room in a comedy movie for someone to make a ridiculous face. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I also liked in terms of like, I mean, I think it's a new edition. I'm less familiar, but uh, 
Lavelle Crawford as the man whose pig uh, was uh, yeah, eaten. Very mm-hmm. good. Very, yeah, very, very good, funny. good bits. Him and his wife have a very good rapport uh, and get a little shine in the uh, uh, post credit sequence as everyone does in this you know, hour and 44 minutes that actually clocks in at 89 minutes in classic Happy Madison fashion, you know, <laughs> 15 minutes of post-credit nonsense. I love it. Love it. Mm-hmm. The O'Doyles also return in this one. Uh, in terms of like older movies, though, I will say the nun saying, you know, the asexual nun that's turned on or whatever. That feels like a joke that would have been in something like Billy Madison. Like, There's Absolutely, a lot of jokes yeah. in this where they're very crude, but the punch feels like the 90s movies it's almost like it's a it's a career retrospective that skips over certain eras maybe Mm -hmm. uh, because it knows what people want kind of and i'm okay with that because i know that the general consensus doesn't love that last grasp of theatrical releases by dugan like Mm -hmm. uh jack and jill grown-ups too and uh just go with it which we all love on the show Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a really weird blend in that respect of like styles of comedy because it's like we have these stories where it's like you're focused on the kids that are like generally like pretty wholesome, like more of the family mode Sandler. But then you do get those like that. I mean, the nun joke like uh, really got me going. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then all of Hubie's mom's shirts, classic, just yeah. like, I don't know, some dumb, stupid shit. And it's like an interesting blending of those styles to like i mean obviously he's going for something that the public will really love with this and i think like um i don't know winds up with a hit this the one that this this uh reminds me of the most is probably the water boy i mean mm-hmm. voice obviously but you have the the overprotective mother which is you know it's only revealed that she's overprotective towards the very end but you know kind of uh a la kathy bates and then just kind of like the relentless bullying you get the you get the Sandler lets you have it both ways. That's yeah. why we like bullying is funny, but also you shouldn't bully people. And that's what he makes movies for. You get to see funny people get bullied, but don't do it yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Save that for the professionals. Yeah. And yeah, all the bullying here is pretty funny. I mean, oh my just God. Ju- every time he screams, it's hilarious. <laughs> One of the most absurd scenes is when Hubie is starting his investigation and shows up at Ray Liotta's father's funeral <laughs> and is like, uh, while, you know, just 25 feet away on the ground, crawling secret agent style. And then, you know, Leota, you know, after the funeral, he's like, I'm sorry, I've been mean to you, man. I'm just a little mixed up. Like, my dad died. And he's like, you know, he would have liked it. And then, you know, they walk past the 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 dad being buried. Leota just pushes him in. <laughs> and it's like, everyone's really upset with Leota, too, that he did so. Yeah, and, I like that Ray Leota is a total jerk in this film. Like, his mom gets so mad at him for pushing Sandler into his dad's grave. And then he hits on the high school girl at the party, too. <laughs> oh, my which God. I didn't that's think crazy. that was going to happen in this movie. Yeah. But I love that he's throwing it to his fans. You know, I, I don't particularly like that. No. <laughs> Uh, in terms of the scares, I think it actually does a decent job at just like using point of view as mm-hmm. a storytelling device. Like it's like slasher 101, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's like, uh, you know, people have criticized the actual filmmaking of these Sandler movies. And I think it's very adept here. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not showy necessarily. Mm-hmm. It, it definitely shows off the neon a little more than usual for Sandler, which again could be, you know, safty style or whatever going uh, with the times just going with the the modern times i guess yeah uh but uh yeah i i really loved this movie it's not like one of my favorite adam sandler movies and it doesn't have that 
hangout feel that I've come to know so much, but it also has more of a propelling plot than any other Sandler movie. It, other than like the first couple, especially Happy Gilmore, I think is like kind of a perfect, mm-hmm. uh, perfectly plotted movie. I think this is the closest he comes to that. And uh, yeah, it's a great movie. I'm going to go four bullets on this one. I'm going to go three and a half bullets. I, you know, I, I like Sandler in family mode. I think he does this well too. A little bit different from his sentimentality role, but he makes a good family comedy you know what i mean hey something the adults could laugh at as well but i you know something where like the kid actors don't bother me as much as they do in other movies with kids even though you know of course i want sandler on screen 24 7 but i you know the the just the like you said brill does a good job kind of making this a little more tightly wound than previous sandlers and there's there's a competence to this and there's a I don't know, just the jokes hit. The jokes were funny throughout, and that's the biggest thing about a comedy movie. And yeah, there's also a big community painted here with a lot of different characters, a lot of different actors. We love it. We love Sandler. How about you, JT? Yeah, I'm going to give this one four bullets. I think that, like, I mean, something we talked about uh, with Scary Movie on the Patreon, I think that, like, really pisses me off about like a type of contemporary comedy is like pivoting towards that like niceness like a a very gentle like Paddington style like that type of oh man you're gonna like your heart is gonna feel so warm (laughs) and it's like really I don't know a testament to how Sandler can make something like Hubie that feels so like earnest and like positive and just like I got a little choked up at the end and Mm -hmm. just like, I don't know, the whole of the film because I think he builds a very, I don't know, believable community. He's not pushing the sentimentality like too hard Mm -hmm. in this one. And it's just like a very, I don't know, broadly painted like little story about, um, I don't know, just just a nice fella. Yeah. And he doesn't have to like hit that too hard. He just knows all the right touches to make it like sweet and in not an overbearing saccharine way it's like it's i don't know the man knows what's uh what's how to hit the emotions well it's because the humor is always there and it's always kind of first priority and it's yeah. it never loses its irreverence i mean towards the end it, tar- it turns out that you know hubie's mom is collecting people and burning them because you know they bully hubie and you know that's you know this hey that's pretty dark yeah so uh <laughs> Yeah, because Sandler goes for the sweetness and the innocence here. Innocence reigns king, uh, reigns <laughs> supreme, <laughs> supreme in this movie. And uh, I don't know. I'm just I'm talking in incomplete sentences. I, I buy yeah, that. Yeah, it's yeah. like I think that he's able to do sweetness because he has like the irreverent humor, dark stuff, and also is a little mean in like the jokes. Like, but he he's a I, I think because you can get so mean, you're allowed to be a little soft. Though. Yeah. Yeah. Also, in terms of the self-referentiality, the end of this film where the next year the kids are dressed up as characters from the movie. <laughs> fucking incredible. Yeah. I loved that so much. Uh, also, I wanted to say one more thing about those novelty t-shirts that Sandler's mom and her friend wear throughout the movie, one of which, of course, being the title of this very episode. It's a very real phenomenon that people buy novelty shirts at the thrift store without the context of the shirt. See a lot of people walking around Los Angeles with novelty shirts that 
you're not quite sure if they're in on the joke or not. That's yeah. amazing. It's a, it's a very strange phenomenon. Yeah. yeah. I've yeah. seen many people uh, at bus stops wearing Juicy J We Trippy Main t-shirts. Yeah. Like that is a thing I've seen five or six times <laughs> in the great city of Reseda, California. <laughs> anyway. We trip. For- anyway, We Trippy Main. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> time for everyone's second favorite segment, the email segment. We get one? Oh, we got four. What the fuck? That's actually like a little too much. It's a bit much. <laughs> After like eight weeks of no email, yeah. four is like, oh boy. Okay. We're going to burn through them quick. Nice. Logan Kenny, our old friend, finally back on the pod. Uh, subject line, Steve Buscemi and werewolves. Hey guys, hyped for the episode. Just want to ask your thoughts on why Steve Buscemi keeps playing werewolves in Adam Sandler produced and starring Halloween comedies as he's pulled this trick in three Hotel Transylvania films alongside Hubie Halloween. Is Buscemi secretly a werewolf trying to confess his true sins in a Louis C.K.-esque manner? (laughs) Or is there a dastardly reason for this running theme? Would love to hear the spooky theories. Also, a quick bonus question. Which Sandler flick is the most likely for Psy to stand Ooh, wishing whoa. you a happy Halloween boys I mean the obvious answer is Chuck and Larry <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say Grown Ups 2 because it's the closest to slow cinema I think so actually yeah, yeah. Grown Ups 2 just go with just it just go with it just, just go, go with, with it, it I think yeah. has the most relaxing even though it has the most like plot entanglements it's also yeah. the most just like low key kind of there's a scene where like I think Sandler and Aniston are taking their kids to go jump in like some pond and I'm just like I I'm I'm floored by the chillness of the scene <laughs> that I, you can't be achieved in other, you know, comedies. As far as Steve Buscemi being a werewolf, I mean, look. Uh, what we don't judge anyone's uh, spiritual views on this podcast, uh, whether or not you believe in werewolves, vampires, Frankensteins. Uh, I don't even say it around me. <laughs> <laughs> I think that Steve Buscemi is 100% humanoid, although I understand the room for interpretation that must be left with someone with those eyes, you know? Yeah, maybe he's a furry or something like that. That could be true. That, that'd be pretty sick. Also, shout out to the advanced Sandler knowledge. I haven't seen those Hotel Transylvania movies, so big up slogan. <laughs> yeah, I think like, I mean, we do a lot of digging into the dark underbelly of Hollywood and the things that those people are hiding. <laughs> but I feel like I, I trust I trust the boys that Sandler is hanging out with, especially the ones he's uh, <laughs> he's uh, coming back for more with. Our next one, uh, the subject line is dude, and it says, go Hubie, go Hubie, go Hubie. Should Buscemi and June Squibb get Best Supporting Actor Oscars this year? I think so. Also, a Shaq nomination? Your Norwegian friend slash Molasar from The Keep. Well, oh man, coming all the way from Michael Mann's The Keep uh, for this email. <laughs> I, as we said, yeah, Buscemi, great. June Squibb, we didn't get to. Also great yeah. in this film. Also great. It's like a really great supporting cast of just like, Everyone who makes up this town. It's yeah. like a really strong sense of community. As I said, uh, second only to Grown Ups 2 in terms of the sense of community. Also, like, you know, I mean, not to get too deep, but the inverse of it, too, where it's like, what does it feel like when a community hates you rather when you're the king of mm-hmm. the community? And uh, does some fun stuff with that comedically. Sanders a great humorist. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Buscemi's great. There's a good community in there. All the all the stuff we said. Next one's from Will Day. Subject: Hubie slash Day's question. <clears throat> Perfect. Hey fella. Ugh. Hey fellas. Been a fan of the pod for a while, but this is my first email. Uh, yeah, we know. 
<laughs> I, uh, welcome we, aboard. Uh, we read the emails. We know. <laughs> One of the most interesting aspects of Days was the deliberate lack of subtitles, which I found incredibly effective. Piggybacking off of this, it seems the main reason for people not liking Sandler are the voices he uses. I honestly find Little Nicky to be grating. I've seen some of you say you need subtitles for many of these performances. <laughs> Have we, we said, said that? I don't think we've said that. <laughs> <laughs> Will maybe, they maybe. pull up that clip of us saying it and I'll believe it? Little Nicky rules. I don't think I've said that. Maybe some, maybe other people other than us. Yeah, I think I misread that too, but I'm not going to reread it. But this is a long winded way of asking what your favorite Happy Madison voice acting performances are. Doesn't have to be the Sandman. Personal favorite of mine is Blake Clark as Farmer Fran in The Waterboy. Best Will, aka Dump God, in the Discord. I know who that is. Let's see. Um,. Rob Schneider, you can do it. Does it get more classic than that? It really does. <laughs> I mean, I know what you're saying about voices. I think Hubie actually, I had to crank the sound system for because it's one of the, the sort of myth of candy yeah. candy. <laughs> <laughs> Like in that range where it's like, what what are you saying? <laughs> um, but like, I don't know. That was something that as a uh, as a young boy put me off the of Sandler. I was like, this this grown man <laughs> is doing these childish voices. They said the same about, you know, Jay Lou. <laughs> Jerry Lewis. Thank you for clarifying. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I love uh Peter Dante's uh voice acting in <laughs> In Grown Ups too, you know. Peter Peter Dante is, I always do, like, covert, like Dante, and I'm always happy to see the Happy Madison uh, regulars. Grandma's boy, uh, he, he puts on a heavy, you know, California bro accent and just yeah. rides that throughout the entire film. Very enjoyable. Also, Alan Covert's California hippie accent in Grown Ups 2, <laughs> when David Spade is rolling by in the tire and he just goes, summer is here, man. <laughs> um, One of my favorite line deliveries in any movie. Hmm. I like uh, Sandler and Zohan. Great Ooh. voice. Oh, that's a great accent. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then uh, Kathy Bates and Waterboy doing oh. a great uh, Southern Southern Mama style. Yeah. A lot of great voice work in Waterboy. Oh, yeah. The whole movie is funny voices. Yeah. Next one, Sandler Q from Gerald Hartman. Hey, guys. Huge fan of the podcast. My question regarding the Sandman is if you consider his being a movie star in the classic sense to be a big factor in why he's so watchable and appealing. Basically, I'm just asking if you think his real-life persona contributes significantly to your enjoyment of the films, or if you think you'd enjoy them in the same way regardless if you knew nothing about Sandler outside of his movies. Also, I need to thank you for introducing me to Freddy Got Fingered. All my film school friends who had seen it described it as just straight-up horrible without any context or subtext that converts the horribleness into greatness, and it's a new favorite of mine thanks to you. Hope y'all are well. Jerry Hartman. First off... That's about the best compliment I know. you can get. Someone yeah. saying they discovered a film because of us? Well, me, because I brought it to the table. <laughs> so that's, that's a, I'm going to take credit for that. Just know that bad things are good, always. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in terms of Sandler's like traditional star persona, I think there's a case to be made. I mean, he's one of the only guys who has a, a small like cottage industry of movies just like starring him, mm -hmm. you know, like Happy Madison Productions revolves around him as a movie star. And I think that his persona off camera informs the more laid back vacation mode Sandler movies, sure. which I think 
I love more than most people. I think most people like Sandler as the goofy guy and don't fully accept him as the well-rounded movie star who can just appear as himself in basketball shorts and kill it (laughs) on screen. No, yeah. Also, I feel like, I mean, it's kind of hard to separate the real life and the movie star at Sandler at this point Mm because I feel like he does put a lot of that into his movies. I mean, I I guess I don't really fucking know how Adam Sandler is in real life. I'd like to assume he's a good guy. But um, I, I mean, I think it's more... I mean, of course, the star power is there. That's undeniable. But it's also just a, a legacy that you get through his films throughout the years that are definitely felt in every release he, you know, he makes or, you know, any role he takes. You know, people go crazy when he makes the uncut gems or I guess people didn't really care about my story that much. But, <laughs> you know, he takes a role like that and that impresses people. Same way, you know, people are impressed like Jim Carrey being serious in a way. I, you know, it's I'm not saying uh, I'm not comparing those two. There's no comparison, but. There's, you know, I feel like every Sandler movie made is almost, uh, you know, is built off the back of the ones previous. That's very true. Yeah, I buy that. I mean, I think like coming late to the game for for the Sandler train, I think a lot of the charm of the man was how I was able to tap into seeing him as the actor auteur and uh like I don't know, especially with you, what you were saying, Eddie, with like through stuff like Grown Ups too, where it's like he's not playing a character really; it's just sort of like coasting by on that like natural charisma and charm. I mean, it's like you his like early like sketch stuff. Um, I don't know. I think there's a lot of like you see the seeds of the talent there, and just like a likability. I think that like obviously isn't inherent into like doing comedy. A lot of comedians are just like fucking like unbearable assholes, <laughs> like off uh, like outside of their persona. But I think it does like make Sandler like more palatable and more enjoyable. And it's like a world that you want to get invited to and want to like be a part of. There's like this inclusiveness to that type of comedy where it's just like at the end of the day, like we're we're like we're bullying each other. We're joking around. But like Sandler has sort of built this like cult or institution of like, yeah, you like at the end of the day, we'll treat you right kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that comes across through his films. Well, I think that's going to do it for this week. Uh, do you have a double feature for next week planned out? Much like uh, every time you ask me this, no, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> it's been oh, a busy week. I'm the dog very ate the double out. feature yet again. <laughs> you guys are putting a lot of pressure on me. All good. <laughs> All good. Uh, you could hit us up on Twitter at ExtendedClip69. Uh, join up on the Patreon, ex- patreon.com slash ExtendedClip. Uh, you guys have anything to plug this week? Uh, join the Discord. Discord's always a good time. You want you want more friends? You want more people to talk to you? Join the Discord. Discord's popping. I don't even go on Twitter anymore. Discord's way better. It's the new forum. That's true. If you're like Twitter sucks, I'm tired of seeing you know twenty posts about like Mike Pence fly or whatever. You know, Ooh. join the Discord. Uh, there was a Eat fly that landed on Mike Pence Who? during the debate. Well, there was a fly that landed on Mike <laughs> Pence during the vice presidential U.S. Um, of America debates with Kamala Harris and Mike Pence, and a fly landed on Mike oh, Pence. Oh, that's. I thought all those tweets were just his fly was down and his cock yeah. was out. I thought it was because he's such a fly guy. He's pretty fly <laughs> for a white guy. <laughs> Mike Pence. <laughs> Who a fly did land on Mike Pence. <laughs> <laughs> 
who? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, there's this uh, this guy named Donald Trump, right? Ups and downs. My dad was a serious man. He worked hard every single day of his life. But he did love to laugh. Okay. And I know he would get a great chuckle out of this. Yay! Yeah! <laughs>